0: I'll dismiss the kiddos as they head to the back and invite the uh, rest of you to open in your uh, Bibles, if you brought one, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is where we'll be today, continuing in our series in the book of James. James. Um, if you're new here and you, they, you just kind of towards the end of uh, the Bible, right after Hebrews, is the book of James. And we're in chapter 5 and we begin a series through the book of James and we're walking through it thematically. Meaning we're not going necessarily line by line, but uh, theme by theme. Remember this letter would have been written um, as it says uh, in the very beginning of... Um, The book of James to the diaspora or the Jews that have been scattered after um, Roman oppression. And so these are little house churches that are meeting a lot of times in hiding in caves all over um, the area. And uh, James, the half brother of Jesus, is just being um, just super to the point with a pastor's heart trying to tell these young Christians what it means to have genuine faith and uh, we've been looking for the past several weeks the issue of how do we suffer well or how do we walk through difficulty with faith how do we encounter difficulty and trials of every kind in a way that proves that we don't just have lip service to the things of God but we have been inwardly changed We spent last week out of town on a family trip, and it's one of those vacations where you come back much more exhausted than when you left. Have you ever had one of those? It's one comedian notes, when you take your family with you, it's normally not a vacation, it's a family trip. And so that's what we were on, and I remember one day we were on a bus or a train or something, I don't remember, and Ashley reaches over and shows me the article about the sinkhole in Bozier, how a car just fell <laughs> into a sinkhole, which is unbelievable, right? Um, to think that those kind of things happen and still happen, and how the ground just gave way. And I was reading that in a little, uh, almost disbelief. And let me ask you this question as we enter into today's text. Have you ever been in a situation in your life that you feel is out of, con- out of your control? As if the ground beneath you is just shifting and there's nothing that you can do but ride it out. How this situation or difficulty or trouble or trial that you're walking through, how it ends up has nothing really to do with you because you're not in control of it. You're just driving through life and the ground falls out beneath you and you just kind of have to wait it out to its foregone conclusion. Now, this is really what James is talking about in James chapter 5, and I want us to read it together, James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. These are the words of God to us. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for Three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of God. If you're going to live a meaningful Christian life, you have to think sensibly. All of us are going to walk through the wilderness and difficulty and trial. And certainly you can look back over your life if you're not currently walking through some sort of difficulty. And you can see the times where you walk through the darkness. When you walk through times where it was difficult, unbearable at times. Paul, speaking of his own journey in the book of Acts, says of one time that we despaired even unto death. Like he is so overwhelmed that it would be easier just to give up on this whole thing. And yet, God came through. If you're going to live this meaningful life through difficulty, we've talked about the responses that we have to have towards difficulty and suffering. First is perspective, it says in chapter 1, that we should consider it all joy because of what it's producing in us. It's producing endurance. Some of the greatest growth I've ever had in my life personally is walking through the hardest times of my life. Rarely do we grow on the mountaintop. But growth happens in the valleys. And not just perspective and endurance, but we have to have patience. If you remember the first part of chapter 5 that we covered a couple weeks ago, James gives us the illustration of the farmer. We should be like the farmer who waits, plants his crop and then waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it, it says in uh, verse 7, until it receives the early and late rains. In verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We have to have perspective and endurance and patience. And this passage, if there's a theme to it, and you probably picked up on it, it's in every verse of uh, of this little passage, it's this idea of prayer. So we ask three questions, and then he gives several statements. His questions, almost, di- almost diagnostic questions that you could even ask yourself this morning. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So I want to just kind of walk through these things and kind of bring this idea of prayer to a head as we walk through Scripture. First, this question, is anyone among you suffering? Now this is a generic word for suffering. It carries with it this idea of serious hardship. You know, if you watch the news or you get a call from a friend or you see something on social media or you get a text and it's one of those heavy texts and you sit back in your chair and maybe take a deep breath and you think, man... That is hard. Like I said, we were out of town last week, and when we landed the plane and turned our phones on, several texts came through, and they were people in our church, and some people not in our church, that were walking through really heavy things. It seemed that we got four or five texts in those few hours that we were in the air. I didn't hear anything last week, and... And they all kind of came. I called Jason later that day. I said, hey, man, what happened? Everything kind of, you know, went went bad when I was gone. He said, you know what? It's been a pretty quiet week until you got back. So I'm not sure what that says about anything. i tell you what it says is that life is hard. And if we try to walk through life thinking that everything is just peachy, did Jesus promise his disciples in this life you will face trouble but take heart what did he say because I have overcome the world James asked is anyone among you suffering again this generic word for suffering it's the same word used in verse 10 mentioned suffering like the prophets did in verse 10 as an example brothers of suffering and patience take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord who we count as blessed those who endured. You know, suffering like the prophets, like Jeremiah being thrown into an empty well, left to starve to death, or Ezekiel who lost his wife, or Hosea whose wife had an adulterous relationship and then God asked Hosea to be faithful and stay with her after that cycle continued on. Suffering like the prophets, Many of you have stories of suffering and difficulty. You, you bear the scars even today of people who have stabbed you in the back, of sickness that you've walked through or your family's walked through, of cancer, it seems like cancer is so pervasive, of marital strife, the difficulty of raising kids, on and on. Suffering. James asked, Is anyone among you suffering? Again, in the example in verse 10 of the prophets who suffered, it says in verse 11, We count those blessed. I thought this was so crazy today. So I studied this verse this week. We count those people blessed. The Greek literally means to regard as happy or fortunate in view of favorable circumstances. These prophets were blessed. Because of their favorable circumstances, really, James must not have known what these guys, of course, he knew. It's the same word used of Mary in Luke 2, where it says that all the nations will call her blessed because she was the mother of the Messiah. James is clued into something, church, that we often miss. What are the favorable circumstances the prophets walked through that Mary herself was to walk through? They were confident of this, that an all-knowing, all-powerful God was in Control. We consider them blessed because ultimately their circumstances, they understood their circumstances were in the hand of God. What do you do when you're suffering? Answer, he must pray. That's what it says in our text. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If you remember back in the first message in this series, chapter 1 and verse 5, It reads, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. That's what prayer is, is us communicating with God, us asking of God, what happens to you when you suffer? We run to Google often before we pray, right? We run to anything before we pray. We complain before we pray. We try to diagnose what's happening before we pray. We run through a mental checklist of our family's medical history before we begin to pray. We give in to anxiety and sometimes discouragement before we pray. Why don't we pray? Why is that not the knee-jerk reaction when difficulty comes is to pray? Well, if we're honest, because in our experience, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. The truth is, we have no idea when we go through a trial, we have no way of knowing what God is doing. There's one thing we do know, is that we have no idea what God's doing. After Job walked through all of the things that he walked through towards the end of the book, he says, who knows the mind of God? So what is the normal response to such suffering? What is, What do we normally run to to manage the pain? Anger and self-pity and discouragement and addiction and blame and on and on we could go. But James makes the point here that although it may be tempting, believers shouldn't respond to difficulty that way, though it might be the natural response of our sinful nature. But believers have the opportunity to, to have a supernatural response. When difficulty comes, we're to count it all joy because of what it's producing, and we are to immediately begin to pray. This is an important characteristic of true faith or genuine faith or faith that works is that it doesn't crumble when difficulty comes upon it, yet we don't run from God, but we turn to God. And through the prayer, God will either take away the situation or he'll keep us in it so that we become what we need to be. Either way, we have the privilege of going to the sovereign God of the universe and crawling up into his lap and hearing him whisper into our ear, I got this. It's all under control. This morning, early in the morning at five something, my middle daughter, Ellie, comes out of her room and crawls up in my lap with a tear in her eye and said, Dad, I had a bad nightmare. And I just remind her that maybe that's, that's not true. She dreams we all got washed away by a hurricane. <laughs> that's not true. Dad's here. We're here. No hurricane. It's raining a little bit outside, but no hurricane. She just needed to be reassured that everything's under control, that she was safe. Many times we don't pray in the midst of these things when we need to be praying the most. We often dread it the most. So that's all he really says there in 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And then it moves immediately to is anyone cheerful? And many of us don't like that. We want it to say because when we pray, the difficulty will be removed. But it doesn't say that. It just says that we should pray. The reality is the prayer does not always take the trouble away. And this is frustrating to most of us because we live as if we are at the center of our own universe and everything should orbit around us. If we're honest, most of us tend to live for our own glory and comfort. We pray with only our comfort in mind. At least often that's the case. But that's how an unbeliever prays, praying to get things the song Ross sang earlier, I'd never heard before, this cry out that all we want is you, not the stuff you provide. It reminds me of John 6 when Jesus came in and, 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 and took the loaves and fish and fed all the people. And then he went across the lake and they all followed him over there. They got their own boats and followed him. And Jesus said, you know what, you haven't come because you want to be near me. You've just come because your bellies were filled yesterday. Maybe that would be a good diagnostic question for our own hearts this morning. Why are you here? Why do you pray? Who are you trusting in? Do you pray only to get things or is this this ongoing relationship with the heavenly father? The believer should pray. Lord, this is what I want, but nevertheless, you know what's best and I trust you. And then he just goes on. He says, next, is anyone cheerful? If you get the King James, it says, if is anyone merry? This kind of speaks of genuine joy, can be known in good and bad times. The word literally means something that has caused us to be noticeably happy and optimistic. Is any one of you cheerful? And Remember, these are words from the heart of a pastor to local bodies of Christians, most likely in, again, little house churches. Is anyone Going through suffering, they should praise anyone. Cheerful, that they should sing praises. This is the word we actually get the word psalms from. Praise is a form of prayer. The point he's making here and comparing these two things is the way we respond when things are good is not to pat yourself on the back and take pride in your state of well-being and brag on your own attitude and skill. But when success happens... We should sing praise to God, thanking him for the situation that we are in in life that has caused us to be so cheerful. It can be difficult to pray in the good times as well as the bad, maybe even harder in the good times. At least it's true for me. Suffering tends to, tends to stop me in my tracks and causes me to lean onto other brothers and sisters who pray and encourage me to endure. However, when things are good, sometimes I just forget. I just kind of lull my own self to sleep. Does that ever happened to you? This is what God warned the people of Israel for. I don't think I have this on the screen. In Deuteronomy 6, God's word to the people of Israel, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to you with great and good cities that you didn't build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat of it and are full it says in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 6 then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery there's a real danger when things are going good when you're cheerful and your bank account's full and the health report is right and all your kids are acting like good kids are supposed to act to forget that it's the Lord who's behind all of those things, and we are to sing praises. So a Christian isn't one that becomes deflated or bottomed out during difficulty, nor do they become overinflated or proud during seasons of good. In the best times, God is in control, and in the worst times, God is in control, and the response of the Christian is to pray and to sing. not lost on me, that in my own life and in my own heart, and I don't know what it is, maybe even about some of our church, that we have this reluctance to emote in singing. I don't know if we feel like we're on this hyper charismatic pendulum, and if we if we emote at all when we sing or raise a hand or to even take a posture on our knees. Or even as David did as he's dancing before the Lord and he tells his wife, I'm going to become even more undignified than this. That I was watching the LSU game yesterday and watching 80, 90, 100,000 people just go crazy over this 18- to 19-year-olds play football. And I'm one of them. I'm, I'm a big fan. I like to cheer. A couple years ago, I was watching it, and LSU scored a touchdown. I jumped up off the couch and threw my back out for four weeks. It was like the most embarrassing story ever, right? Like, hey, what happened to you? Sorry, I, was, I just cheered the nachos, and now I'm using a walker. Isn't it strange? The God of the universe, bankrupted heaven to send His Son for us, to die a death and to pay a debt that we could never pay, and to offer us salvation for eternity. And for some reason, we just feel like we just can't get emotional about that. For some reason, we should be a singing people. And a praying people for sure. Then he moves on. In verse 14, he says, this Is anyone among you sick? That certainly is a specific type of suffering. The kind that if you've walked through lingering sickness, where you have very little to no control over, if anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So is anyone among you sick? The answer, then you should call the elders or the pastors, your community group or missional community group leaders to gather around you and pray. There should be nothing embarrassing about needing prayer. If something that we've been praying for as pastors as we enter into this year is that we would we would, we would create a culture in this church of prayer where it would be the knee-jerk reaction that it would be expected that we pray. At 9 o'clock we pray with some of the guys and gals that come help set up and some that come early and it's exciting to see that group growing from just Jason and I and Jason and I and Thomas and Jeff and now it's growing to more and more people where we're praying we're We're acknowledging our neediness and we're asking God to do what only he can do in our lives and in our body. It should be the natural thing when you're sick that you should call others to pray. And I know that sounds kind of mystical, doesn't it? It says, let him call for the elders to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That oil part sounds kind of mystical. What kind of oil would you use? Oh, it doesn't matter. Canola, valvoline, it doesn't matter. People ask if I've ever been anointed with oil. Yes. When I was ordained into the ministry, and once and I was really, really sick, the oil is just symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It identifies the power, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that has the supernatural power to physically heal if it accomplishes the will of God. God, as I'm praying over this person, I acknowledge that this is a person in the family of God and under the power of the Holy Spirit, and only by your power can this person be healed. And so I pray today in all faith that you, according to your will, would bring healing. It's just a symbol. When you look through the Old Testament, oil was used to anoint the king's. Sometimes used in sickness, but again, it's just a symbol. Oh, Oil no more heals you than water in the baptistry saves you. It's just a symbol. And then following that question, we have three kind of conjunctions, all separated with the word and. I think it says it probably in your passage. I'm not sure what version you're using. It says in verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So the three phrases and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Now there's really only two things being communicated here. Although those three phrases, those first two are dependent upon each other. Restore the one who is sick and the Lord raising them up is the same idea. If I prayed for my daughter to be healed, I would not walk away saying that my daughter was healed through my prayer. That I crafted my prayer so perfectly. And I mustered up just the right amount of faith that somehow everything lined up between heaven and earth. And because of the words I ordered, like uh, like, uh, I muttered like some sort of cantation that the words are what healed. No, my prayer didn't heal. I would say that God healed my daughter. And although the prayer was an agent or a means of the healing, I didn't cause the healing. In the same way, we don't pray for someone's salvation and then claim that we saved them. No, it's God that saves, it's God that forgives, and it's certainly God that heals. Prayer no more heals someone than a prayer of salvation saves someone. You can't craft a prayer so perfectly to achieve salvation. This is the work of God. And it's crippling, I think, to some people to think that we have to muster up the right amount of faith so that we could heal someone else. Look at the last phrase here. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Not every sickness is a result of sin. Those of you who are struggling with sickness should not automatically think that there's some sin out there. But it is certainly possible. However, some sickness is certainly a result of sin. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner caused some of those in this early church in Corinth to become weak and even sick. And some even died, Paul said. So it's important to pray and examine whether sin is causing our sickness. There is something to this. Well, then, Pastor, how do I know if the sickness that I'm currently suffering is a result of sin or not? Well, sometimes you don't. But when you get sick, I hope that first thing you do would be a great reminder to examine your own life. Now, you shouldn't wait until you get sick to examine your own life, but it's kind of a built-in reminder that's constantly there to evaluate our life. I think verse 15 might be one of the most incorrectly and often abused passages in the New Testament. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick and the Lord raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Many read this verse and think they now can blackmail God into doing what they want. As if they force God into some corner And they're demanding that they be healed, even if that's not his will. Think, for example, that's not how God works. Think about Paul and his thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to torment him. And we don't know what that is. A lot of people speculate it was his poor eyesight or it was his health. We have no idea, but it was something that was... Certainly difficult and oppressing him in a very real way that the Apostle Paul would plead with the Lord many, many times, right? Three times he's asked the Lord that he remove it. And what did God say? Paul, I'm not going to take it away. Did Paul not pray with this measure of faith? Did Paul himself, the very man who, you know, was preaching and someone fell out of the window and died because he was preaching so late and Paul goes out and like heals him and restores him to life? This kind of Paul? This missionary Paul, did he not have enough faith to be healed even of himself? No, that's that's silly. We can't force God into the corner to heal just because we've got some kind of right amount of faith. Again, this is why a few reasons I think people take this verse out of context. In this context, if you'll notice, it's not even the individual praying. Who's the one praying in this passage? It's the elders. Right? Is anyone among you sick? Then call for the elders. So they can't boast in their own praying or the faith of their own praying. They're not even the ones praying. Second reason, if you suggest that this prayer is the prayer that's healing them, then by force of logic, you also have to say that it's the prayer that's actually forgiving their sins. And this is why a lot of uh, Roman Catholics use this verse to defend why a priest can forgive someone's sins. But we believe that only God heals and only God forgives. When you think about a prayer of faith, it often contains the idea, again, if I have just enough faith and I can move the mountains and I can change this situation, but here is where this thinking leads. It makes the object of my faith my faith. I begin to boast in my faith and not in God. Does that, does that make sense? The object of our faith should always be God. The genuine prayer of faith is not just confidence in God's ability, his omnipotence. It's also confidence in God's omniscience or his ultimate wisdom. To say it another way, and I want you to get this, when I pray with faith, I'm acknowledging that God is not only just powerful enough to do it, but that he's wise enough to know when and wise enough to know if and wise enough to know how. And so when I'm walking through difficulty and I pray, God, this is is difficult. And you know the depth of my grief and my suffering. And I'm praying that you would alleviate me of this trial that is upon me. But also in that prayer, this prayer of faith, I'm acknowledging that God is all-wise and all-knowing and all-loving. So how do we respond to such a situation? We should live a life of prayer. Look at verse 16. You see how prayer is woven through all of them. If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs of prayer or songs of praise. If you're sick, call the elders to pray. Pray. And then in verse 16, therefore, based on all the things that he said so far, because some sin does lead to your sickness, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a great benefit because I don't know if you're like me, but when you're physically weak and walking through difficulty, you're more tempted to sin at that moment. And this is bringing in, again, this is from the heart of a pastor, James, through the power of the Holy Spirit writing these words, and he's instructing the church, man, when things get difficult, you need to look up to God, and you need to look out to each other. This vulnerability and authenticity is here in verse 16, confessing to one another, this doesn't mean that. I'm inviting you to stand in the front to confess all your sins to everyone. I mean, God might lead you to do something like that. And I've seen it happen sometimes in in the past. God's used it in pretty miraculous ways. It's the same thing that John in his first epistle, in 1 John, is encouraging us to walk in the light. And we have sin in our life, ongoing, unrepented of sin, we got to deal with the church. We can't just hide it in the darkness. And you should look for some safe people that you trust or call a pastor or look for your missional community group leader. And not because they're forgiving your sin. Not only God is forgiving your sin. But there is something powerful about speaking it so that the enemy doesn't use it, right, to bring shame and guilt upon you anymore. You kind of get it out there and you let it be known so that they can pray with you and provide accountability and The Holy Spirit would infuse new life there. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Since God can heal through prayer, church, we should pray. Since God gives you wisdom in your difficulty, church, you should pray. Since God does forgive sin, church, we should pray. Maybe you might be thinking, well, why should I pray? Doesn't God just accomplish what he wants? Ultimately, yes, but God uses means. He places burdens on our hearts so that we would return to him in, in confident prayer and prayer of faith. And we would pray for that specific thing that he placed a burden upon our heart about. And then for some reason in the economy of God at that moment where this burden is responded with our obedience with prayer, God unleashes something in heaven and God brings His answer. Listen, church, prayerlessness is not spiritual. It might be the popular thing in the church today. To say it another way, passivity is not Christian. You can't say, I believe in the sovereignty of God and it's all going to happen how he wants. So I'm just going to stay quiet over here to justify our own laziness or cowardice. No, God uses the means of prayer to accomplish his will. So he saves your neighbor, but he does it through you sharing the gospel with them. So he heals your daughter, but he does it because you have reached out and prayed for them. So he comforts you in your suffering because you've called others to pray with you as you walk through it. So since God uses the means, For the love of God, literally, we should pray. Because God uses prayer to change things. And oftentimes those things, the prayer is changing us much more than the circumstance around us. This passage is so simple, yet I think churches, certainly across America... It does not describe well that we should be a praying people and a singing people and a confessing people and a people of great faith. Does that describe our church? What Churches you're familiar with, does it describe you? You know, Jesus started his ministry with 40 days of prayer in the wilderness. And he ended his ministry with praying all night in the garden. And every one of the gospel writers makes a point to include that it was the regular practice when the disciples would wake up, they couldn't find Jesus because he had removed himself to pray. And if the very Son of God, in the likeness of God, himself knew, Jesus knew that he had to spend time connecting with the Father, so should we. you ever thought about the posture of prayer? Growing up, I thought that it was like breaking some kind of heavenly rule if I did not close my eyes during the prayer. As if, you know, there's some angel God sent to watch me and zap me, right? If I didn't close my eyes. When you look through Scripture, very few people when they prayed bowed their head and closed their eyes. Commentary I was reading said that bowing heads and closing eyes was, and closing eyes was, the way of the Victorian Sunday school teachers to make antsy kids be quiet. If you'll notice, if you read through and you see as Jesus prayed, you'll often see that he looked up to the heavens. As this physical mode of looking up to the heavens reconnected him with what. Reality was really going on with the loaves and the fish that he looked up to the heavens when Lazarus was in the tomb it said that he looked up to the heavens James ends with this reference to Elijah as an illustration of the phrase the effective prayer of the righteous man is that right? Well, we read the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it's working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I think we have just a, a few minutes to look at this. This is not on the screen. If you want to turn to it, it's First Kings 18 this is the actual uh, passage. If you don't want to look, that's fine. I'm going to read it uh, Read it to you. 1 Kings 18 and verse 41. We see in this passage that Elijah is the one causing it to rain. We don't see that he's also the one that caused it not to rain. But in verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, who was the king, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. Again, it hadn't rained in... Several years, so Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. A different posture of prayer. And he said to his servant, go up and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. Elijah's continuing to pray and he said again, go again. Seven times he keeps telling him to go and look at the sea. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, well, go up and to Ahab, prepare your chariot to go down, lest the rain stop you. Another awesome statement of faith. He saw a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And yet he's telling him, hey, you better get off this mountain. There's going to be such a torrential rain that you're not going to be able to go. And then a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode, and went to Jezreel. Of course, Ahab's riding a chariot or horse. Verse forty-six. This is comical to me. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered his garment. Translation might say, "girded his loins," which sounds much cooler. And he ran before Ahab to the entrance. He beat the guy on the horse is what it's saying. The point James is making is quite clear. If Elijah was a man just like you and me, you read through the life of Elijah, God used him in incredible ways, but he also had some pretty big screw-ups. He was a man like you and me with doubt, and difficulty, and sin, and suffering. And if he could pray that it wouldn't rain for three years, and then pray again that it would rain and it caused the rain, then you and I should have the confidence to pray. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I memorized that verse out of the King James. I think it says the the fervent prayer of a righteous man. The author of Hebrews talks about this. I love this passage. I'm going to read it real quickly, and we're going to bring this message to an end. If you highlight or underline your Bible, I suggest that you do this. This has brought such great hope to my heart. Since then, we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4.14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus I love these adjectives, the verbs in this verse that we should with confidence draw near. Some of us don't think we're worthy to approach God on his throne, this throne, the image of victory and royalty. Yet it says that with confidence we should draw near to the throne. And I love that this throne has a name. It's the throne of grace throne of grace because those have been invited don't by their own accomplishments deserve to be there it's an invitation for the misfits and the broken and the beat up and the sinful and those that have a lot of baggage and skeletons in the closet those are the ones that go to the throne of grace and those are the ones that have been invited in I'm going to ask the, the Ross to come up I'm going to prepare for communion in just a second but I want to look at one more last phrase here the throne has a name this throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need so basically we could divide the categories of our life times of need In times of no need. What season of life are you in? Are you in a time of need? Is there something you're asking God for? As a matter of fact, we don't have time to really push it, but if you look into it all of life, we are in desperate need. There's never a time where we don't need the wisdom of God, where we don't need the comfort of the Holy Spirit, where we don't need the power of God to lead us, the eye of God to go before us. There's never a time where where we're not in need. So basically, this is an invitation that we should run to God with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace where we've been accepted and invited that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Reflecting on this verse, Samuel Chadwick wrote, this is a quote you've probably heard before. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. We're going to take communion in just a minute. But I want to invite you to spend some time praying. Maybe you would draw near to the throne of grace. Where you could find help. Maybe you're walking through one of the darkest seasons of your life. The invitation of God himself is to draw near. I love in that passage too that it reminds us that Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, is for you. He is standing by the Father on your behalf as an advocate, as our great high priest. I want to spend some time praying. If you're here with a spouse, I think it would be totally appropriate to grab their hands and just pray together. If you're here alone, feel free to pray by yourself. If you've got kids in here, find some room and pray. Parents, I urge you to know what you're praying for, uniquely for your kids. What are you praying for them? So you uniquely wired and each wired so differently and open to attack of the enemy in unique ways. We should be praying for our kids. We should be praying for our friends and praying for those in our missional communities. Several in our our church have had just a hellacious weekend with just bad news. We should be praying for them. Our prayer team is going to be in the back like they normally are. And maybe you just need them to agree with you in prayer over what you're walking through. You need to hear them praying for you. I'd be happy to pray for you. I'll be in the back as well. Then our Communion servers will be up front. You don't have to be a member of our church to come and partake in communion, but you do have to be a member of God's family, having placed your faith and trust in Him and desiring to live a life of obedience. And here we just take the bread and dip it into the cup and take it. But Ross is going to play here in just a minute. I'm going to pray and you do what the Lord leads you to do. I pray, church, that we become a praying church. God, thank you for your mercy, for this invitation that you've invited us to come to a throne of grace, to boldly and confidently come to your throne and let our requests be made known with absolute faith that you know what's best. And in some cases, you bring physical healing, in some cases, you remove the difficulty, yet in some cases, you just give us the power to persevere in the midst of some of these things. Lord, we do lack wisdom, and we ask you to give us wisdom so we would be able to consider it joy when we're walking through some of the darkest seasons of our life, that you would remove the pride from our hearts, that we would reach out to other brothers and sisters and confess the difficulty and maybe even sin in our life that we would be healed from those things and united together that those that are sick would feel comfortable reaching out to the pastors or their community missional community leaders and asking them to come and pray Lord I pray against the enemy deceitfulness building up of our own pride that we don't reach out in prayer Lord we'll probably never be one of those churches with a big building and a big sign out front Lord my prayer for us is that we would be a church that knows how to pray Lord teach us to pray we admit that we live in a broken world. We feel the effects and brokenness this world every day through our own sickness and watching the news and seeing things crumble. Lord, we have all the confidence in you. You're doing a work in us and you've promised to complete it. Making us look more and more like Jesus every day. I pray that we would submit to that, that we would repent of trying to do things our own way. Lord, I pray for the supernatural even in, even in our midst that you would increase our faith. Give us boldness. We'd cry and pray desperate prayers. Ask big things of you that wouldn't We see them that we wouldn't brag that it was our prayers. Lord, no. It was what you are doing. Not to us, oh Lord. But all the glory and praise belongs to you. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. You come when you're ready for communion. Again, the prayer team's in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.